Good afternoon, folks. It's that time of the day again. Time for the Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM and 99.1 FM Talk. This is your host, Sam DeMarco, joined in studio as usual by my trusty executive director. No, he is not an elf. John is over six foot tall. Uh, John Schneider. And, as always, dazzling Daryl Grandy. Now, Daryl is a producer. He could certainly get Santa's Elves Workshop moving here, right? <laughs> so if we need more production, Daryl's the man to do it. But, uh, guys, thanks for joining me here today. I'm very excited about the show here today. I mean, just, you know, two days before Christmas, and we have someone with a wonderful family that's joining us, and that would be our state representative from the 40th Legislative District, Natalie Mahalik. Natalie, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. And hello, John and Daryl. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. I'm looking forward to it as soon as I get everything done, which at this point, we're, we're not looking great. <laughs> well, listen, yeah, Natalie, I think you're in the boat that most people are. You know, even when you think that you've, you, you, you plan for everything and you, you have everything done, there's always these last-minute accommodations, whether for dinner or you know, last-minute gifts or presents or exchanges or things of that nature. So uh, you're not alone. So uh, well, That makes we, me feel slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, that's my story, and I am sticking to it. So, well, you know what? We really appreciate you joining us here, you know, just a couple of days before Christmas because uh, next year is going to be a big year. It's a big year for the Republican Party, but it's also a big year for the state, and for our country, you know, 2024, a lot of big elections next year. We have, obviously, the presidential election. Uh, who's going to take and sit in the White House in 2025? It's going to be determined this year. And we have a Senate seat where we have a great candidate. Dave McCormick is running against, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden rubber stamp, Bob Casey. Uh, but also, you know, our state Senate and the majority in the state House is going to be up for grabs. You know, after uh, the redistricting that the Democrats did in 2022, they were able to take a one-seat majority in the House, and they have really overreached there. So that's all going to be up next year. And wanted to check in and see how are you feeling about things. I'm pretty nervous, actually, even with the excitement of Christmas upon us. I am looking ahead to 2024. We've got presidential U.S. Senate races. The Pennsylvania row offices, Congress, half of the state Senate, and of course the Pennsylvania House. So right now, Sam, we're at a, a tied chamber in PA House. We're mm-hmm. 101 to 101, and that's only been for about the last week where we had a, a Democrat member from the Philadelphia area. He won a seat for magisterial district justice, I think in Bucks County. Um, and he made his resignation uh, official on Friday. So we are officially tied. The interesting thing about that is we're not going to go back in this session until March. And the reason that the speakers stated for that isn't because of the tide chamber, and we all know it is. It's because of a water leak over <laughs> the House floor. And she's very worried about you know all of us sitting there on the House floor <laughs> making our votes and maybe some water dripping from above. Yeah, I was going um, to ask you, did he take some ceiling towels with him or something? <laughs> you know? <laughs> This leak has been around for about a year, year and a half, from what I'm told. Um, I do have a right-to-know request into the Department of General Services about it. I, I got nowhere with just a, a light inquiry, inquiry, so I did file a right-to-know request. 
just because I think the public's entitled to know, like, what is exactly going on? Are we not in session as we're supposed to be? We're our full-time legislature, but is the reason we're not in session really because of a water leak? Or is it because it's a tied chamber and the Democrats don't want to risk anything by bringing us back while we're 101 to 101? Well, I, I think we know the answer to that. And I think it's option number two, you know, um, and, and it is a shame. I mean, um, they really haven't in the year that they've been in charge here or been in the majority have not really done anything. I mean, the beginning of the year, there were months that were wasted, you know, while they jockeyed and waited for the results of some special elections here in Allegheny County in order to actually have the majority. And then over the course of the year, you had uh, State Representative Sarah Inamorato, who stepped down because she's running for county executive. That created a tie again, in which case they prolonged the summer break. And even, even during a budget impasse, where fiscal code bills had yet to be written and not coming back until late September, you know, after her replacement had been seated. I mean, they really haven't accomplished much, have they? There has been no substantive wins on the Democrat side. And, you know, they, they've labeled it a humble majority. And it is just that. But, you know, you're right to you know, bring back all, all of those points over 2023. This is my fifth year in the legislature and really the most frustrating, even more frustrating so than COVID was for us, um, just to be perfectly honest, because we're a ship without a captain, it seems like. They don't, they haven't been in the majority in 12 years. I mean, it's 12 years, it's a long stretch, but it's not 100 years. Um, so they claim there you know, was a learning curve. But it's been an entire legislative year where we haven't been able to deliver for the people of Pennsylvania because they're too busy trying to figure out how, how do we run a committee meeting. Um, and the sad part is they're really not concerned about governing and getting things done and getting some policy wins. They're just concerned about increasing their majority next time. And I that's think that's... Really, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. And, I, and that's one of the things I wanted to touch on. You know, folks, for our listeners out there who don't pay a lot of attention to politics, you need to be careful on some of the things you hear or read or see. Because as Natalie's describing, or State Representative Mahalik is describing here, uh, in politics, sometimes the other side will run what they call messaging bills. Okay? So what this means is they know that what they're putting up has absolutely zero chance of becoming law. It's just designed to try to paint Republicans or the other party into a corner. And that's what Democrats have tried to do, trying to leverage, uh, for example, uh, you know, the 2022 midterms, you know, the Republican red wave, which had been forecasted that didn't occur. Many folks believe it's because Democrats spent over $400 million nationally, you know, trumping, uh, talking about uh, abortion, you know, in elections. Uh, you have like state legislatures, such as Pennsylvania's Democrat majority, trying to put up bills that have no chance of ever becoming law, but trying to take and paint Republicans in a corner. And I, and I believe you were actually a victim to part of that. Were, were you not? Oh, several times, Sam. Um, maybe only a few that you're aware of, but I'll, I'll give you some examples mm -hmm. of it. And one has to do with the budget. Uh, so we have several you know, legislative duties 
uh, as state representatives, and our main being to pass a budget for the people of Pennsylvania. We do so every year. It's due June 30th. Most years it passes on time, maybe within a, a you know, day or two of that deadline. This year, however, we just passed it last week when we were in session. So it's, it was nearly six months overdue. Now, I have been you know, told that there were very little um, negotiations going on between the administration, between the House, and between the Senate, which, is, of course, the Senate is a Republican majority, and the governor's mansion is held by uh, a Democrat, Josh Shapiro. Um, I was told there was very little negotiating going on. So when we had opportunities in the fall, you know, after the extended summer break, which we didn't need because we had a budget that wasn't done, so we come back into the fall, and instead of either negotiating or trying to, you know, put a product back into the hands of the Senate to get something to Shapiro's desk to pass a budget, a palatable budget to to everybody, not just Republicans or Democrats, but this is you know, a sensitive issue. The $40 billion budget that we're talking about, those are taxpayer dollars. Um, so we should be delivering to the people that paid into it. Those are the taxpayers in Pennsylvania. Um, instead of focusing on any of that or getting a, a final product, what the Democrats did in the House was ping-pong this bill back and forth. Our fiscal code is the perfect example of this. They took out something that they knew was a top priority for the Senate, a top priority for many Republicans, is the EITC credits. And, it, and there were, you know, a couple of different, um, you know, educational components to it. And I'm not talking about the, uh, you know, education situation. We ended up with Josh Shapiro line item vetoing, um, you know, one of our priorities that he actually made a promise to support and then reneged at the last moment. I'm talking about EITC credits. So we passed the fiscal code that from the House to the Senate, stripping out the EITC language that the Senate had originally sent us. And we're all sitting there having to vote for this. And as a Republican, I don't want to vote for it. It doesn't have the EITC in it. So I vote against it. And while I'm sitting on the House floor that day, the campaign arm of the House Democrats, HDCC, is sending out text messages to my legislative district saying, she voted against a child care tax credit. She voted against this. She voted against that. Well, what I voted against was a fiscal code that was never going to pass the Senate because that EITC language did not exist. There were many things in there that I supported, some that I didn't. But at the end of the day, they're playing ping pong while we're looking to pass bills. And they're just too busy sending out text messages to hopefully make us a little bit more vulnerable in November of 24. Yeah, and, and this is something, I mean, look, both parties have done this in the past but Democrats are trying to do it with Republicans on the subject of abortion. We talked about budgets. Uh, they've tried to do it on uh, guns and Second Amendment issues and things like this. And I bring this up today, you know, for our listeners to understand that it, not everything you hear, read, or see is exactly what you think it is, you know. And before folks make decisions on things or, you know, get worked up or upset. They, they really need to do the research and look into it and understand, you know, what the, uh, the ramifications were and whether someone was just trying to protect, you know, protect their constituents and uh, themselves, you know, uh, from being uh, these negative attack ads that the Democrats are just preparing to put up and they're already sitting in the can. They're, they're locked and loaded. I, I, I would just caution our Republicans, you know, consider the source. 
if you're getting a text or a mailer or whatever it is from a, a, a Democrat uh, or a Democratic <laughs> organization, just you probably want to take pause and wonder why are you getting this? Because yep. chances are they're just trying to stir up trouble. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you want to tell the folks about uh, the recent budget uh, amendments that passed. The, the, the bills that just passed here is you guys finished the budget. Do you want to tell folks about anything exciting or, or good that happened or came out of those uh, the, the, these recent meetings? There, there wasn't too much excitement uh, at the end of the day. So they you know, gave us the final version of the fiscal code about 20 minutes before we had to vote on it. So that was fun to try to digest um, that amount of information. Um, I will say that they did the Senate was able to put the EITC language back into the fiscal code, send it to the House where it did pass. Um, so just if it, you know, there's any confusion by my by my last statement, it was initially stripped, um, but we were able to negotiate that part of it back in. Um, you know, there were some wins in in education. Um, I think that you know the Senate had some of their priorities adopted in in being in in the minority in the House on the Republican side, you know, very few of ours. So we were largely reliant uh, on the Senate to just look at some of those shared conservative ideas and, and get them adopted into the budget that way. So there were, you know, after six months, no major fireworks um, at the 11th hour, I suppose. Well, I guess that's good news, right? Or or as good as could be expected. It's as good as can be expected. I mean, at the end of the day, if we're not in session until March, the governor has to come before us in early February. It's in the, it's in the Constitution of when he gets to, gets to do his budget address. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the reality was he's not going to want to come in February and do this budget address without the first one being done. And I think that's probably you know why we were able to get to a finished product so quickly when we were out in session last week. Well, I'm glad you were able to escape there relatively, I guess, unscathed, you know, with the... Uh the way things had been going there. So so what are your hopes for 2024 from a legislative perspective for Harrisburg? So I have, you know, some of my own priorities that I work on. And, and I'll just say, you know, some of the things that I've worked on in the past, a lot has to do with you know, criminal justice reform um, and some things that tend to have, you know, very wide bipartisan support. So I'm going to continue to focus on those and hope that I can, you know, move the needle on some of those policy priorities that that I have been working on really, you know, for the last five years. Um, legislatively, for the House uh, in its entirety, I would fully expect to continue to have to put up these political votes because we will be in an election year. Uh, we'll be past, you know, petition period by mm-hmm. the time we're back in session. Uh, so we'll be definitely putting up, you know, some of these more difficult votes that, you know, we will have to individually message to our legislative districts to let our voters know what's really going on versus the political text messaging or, you know, mail pieces they might be getting from the House Democrats. So I I expect uh, them to continue down this road of, well, we can't really govern with uh, this humble majority of, you know, a one-seat majority um, and no-seat majority right now, but we would expect uh, for that vacancy to be filled by a Democrat in the Philadelphia suburbs. It's a very blue district. Uh, so when we do come back, we would be expected to be at 102 to 101. And that's difficult for them to move any of their priorities, and they know it. So they're looking to increase that majority in 24, put up more of these political votes. Um, 
So I'm going to try to stay above the fray on that as best I can. I do represent the suburban area here in the South Hills uh, while continuing to work on some of my priority bills. Well, I think that, uh, I mean, I understand what their goal is, as you said, to try to increase the majorities. But I think that this is going to be a different year for Republicans. I mean, when we go back to 2020, which was the first year that mail-in ballots were in effect, you know, Republicans did take and utilize uh, vote-by-mail to a certain extent. And the turnout was there that allowed every single Republican incumbent in the uh, Allegheny County to win re-election. You know, we took and we won a Democratic Senate seat, and basically we should have won the second. You know, we took and knocked off the minority leader in the House, and we elected a new first-time uh, representative in former Speaker Terzai's seat. <clears throat> so I think, you know, these folks who are just automatically assuming that they're going to do so well in 2024 – you know, regardless of who's at the top of the ticket here on the Republican ballot, turnout, I don't believe, is going to be an option. Or excuse me, it's going to be an issue. And I think that uh, they could be hard challenged based upon their failure to deliver anything to improve the lives of the people of Pennsylvania. You know, anything that would indicate why, you know, they should have a majority. I know, you know, even though uh, petitions start in just a few weeks, I know that we're getting many, uh, many calls from folks wanting to look at running as a candidate here, you in the House. So they should be careful what they wish for. Absolutely. And I, and I think you were exactly right before you corrected yourself. Turnout is not an option. Right. It's not an option <laughs> in 2024. So whether it's vote by mail, you're showing up in person, make plans. And I appreciate it, Sam. You've been such a leader on the mail-in balloting issue. Um, as you know, our, a large portion of the Republican Party was very much opposed to it. Um, and like it or not, that's just where we are right now. And I think it's important to just embrace that and get our turnout numbers up. And we have been successful in, in some of our races. And I know there's you know, candidates coming out for some of these uh, you know, seats that could potentially swing back uh, to red uh, with, with, if all goes well. Uh, and I think that's great. And I think that we just have to keep our eye on the prize and try to not get distracted you know, with some of these things going on. And that's why I focus on, you know, some of the legislation that I do, because it helps me to just keep focus of, you know, why am I actually here? Like, what changes did I come to this body to, to make? Like, how can I better Pennsylvania without just constantly staying focused on, like, well, what are they saying about me now? Because that's not benefiting me, and it's certainly not benefiting my constituents. Right. And, you know, I, again, uh, and this is, as I talk to folks across the Commonwealth, and Republicans are all talking about, hey, they're going to have a significant investment in mail-in ballot initiatives and things like that. And I think that's all good, but all of these things are termed, they're all revolving around what they call the chase. You know, they want to chase these ballots. And to me, you know, I, I think we're fine from a chase perspective. Our problem is how do we take and change the mindset or the psyche of low-propensity Republicans in the first place to get them to apply for the mail-in ballots, because that's, that's the issue. That is the trick. And, and it's almost going to take something that excites them about voting. And we have plenty of opportunity on the ballot in 24. And that's why I think it, it could be the year. It has potential written all over it. I mean, presidential, U.S. Senate, Pennsylvania row offices, Congress, half of the state Senate, and all of the Pennsylvania House. And that's a lot. Um, so chances are you could find a candidate that that resonates with youth. I think 24 is our opportunity to really get to those low propensity voters. 
does there have to be a, a candidate somewhere up or down the ballot um, that they're going is going to excite them? Is going to you know elicit their um, response at the polls? No, I hope so. And, and you know, you hear, and Nellie, you you've been around the like you said, you're in your fifth year. I've been uh, working in politics here for probably a little over a, almost a decade and a half. And, uh, you know, I've heard in the past where folks say this is the most important election of our lifetime, okay? But when you look at the millions of people that are coming across our southern border, you know, Senator Fetterman, who would have thought, right? But he said it's the equivalent of the city of Pittsburgh coming across in Texas every single month, okay? We've got to do something to secure the border. So I don't know if we failed to turn out and we failed to win back the White House, to take back the Senate, to you know regain the majority in the state house, okay, especially with a Democratic governor. You know, I don't know what this would look like in a few more years. So it really is imperative that folks you know do take this seriously and come out to vote. And for all you people that are concerned about election integrity and things like that, let me give a few th- give you a few things to make you mad. You know, rumors that I've heard or the new incoming county executive is going to want to go to satellite voting offices again. Okay. We haven't had those since 2020. And when those came in, they were paid for by the Zuckerbucks, you know, uh, but I hear she wants to create those. She wants to put drop boxes all over Allegheny County. We could have stopped it. We could have stopped it by electing Joe Rocky, but we didn't. So, uh, you know, again, I understand a lot of people don't like mail-in voting. I understand all of that. But until we win and can do something about it, it's here to stay. So we need to take advantage of the rules as they are, the 50 days of early voting, and we need to go out there and make our voices heard. So all of our listeners out there, you know, I didn't mean to get you fired up before Christmas here, you know, in the holiday period, but I just wanted to let you know uh, this is what's at stake. We're, you know, serious times. So they require us to get serious and serious about voting, making our voices heard, supporting our local party and our candidates, and doing what we can to uh, to elect a Republican majority across the board here in 2024. Now, Natalie, you have some news to announce, don't you? Didn't you just I announce? Do. Yes, go ahead. I do. I, am, I have decided to run uh, for another term in the Pennsylvania House. Like I said, I'm in my third term right now, halfway through, or nearly so, and I've feel like I have unfinished business there, so I'll be running for another term and kicking things off right in the start of the new year. Well, congratulations. You know, I'm happy to support you. Now, if our listeners would like to support you, how would they go about signing up to volunteer or to donate to your campaign? I mean, they can go right to my website. It's nataliemihalik.com, so it's pretty easy as long as you can get over the the Slovak spelling. It's (laughs) M-I-H-A-L-E-K. Hey, there's a lot of Mahalics in the Pittsburgh area, and we all have a little different spelling there. Um, but right on my website, you can donate, you can volunteer, you can request yard signs. Uh, any help is always appreciated. It's, of course, you can't do a campaign alone, and I've had you know, a nice base of support here in the 40th District, and my family's been super supportive and very, very helpful. And as my kids have gotten a little bit older, they've become a little bit more useful on the campaign trail. I know they've been... <laughs> You know, <laughs> Sam seen them in, in all shapes and forms, own banking and assembling yard signs and all sorts of things over the years. Um, but they just get more, more and more productive, it turns out, as time goes on. Well, you have a beautiful family, and I can certainly see how they would be an attribute 
on the campaign trail. They are for sure, and they do like it. I mean, we've um, you know it's become the family business at this point in time. It's been five years, and my oldest was in kindergarten when I undertook my first campaign, and now she's in middle school. So it's been you know quite a transition for her and my for my other two as well. Um, but it's really you know just become you know part of our family. Well, that's wonderful. That's why hey, you know, <clears throat> the family that run for election together, stays together. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's there awesome. Some headaches over the years for sure. They they stuck by my side. <laughs> no, they 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 absolutely have. You know. So I mean, Natalie, I I I'll tell you again. I've had the opportunity to work with you for a number of years here. You know, even before you ran for uh, state representative, you were heavily involved in the Saint Clair Upper Saint Clair Republican Committee. You know, and it has been a pleasure. And you know, we're we're going to have to take a break here in just a few minutes. But when we come back, I, I'd like you to remind some folks about your background here. You know, growing up in McKeesport, Navy veteran, nuclear program, things of that nature. You know, if if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks, Sam. No, I appreciate the opportunity, and I've appreciated you over the years. Our our friendship, your, your counsel. Sometimes I just need a call, and then you're always willing to take the call. So I, I've appreciated you know, what you lend to the party too. Well, it's nice that you're saying that considering what you said to me about being a Marine when we first met, you know, <laughs> I have no shortage of Marine jokes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we're, we're going to be right back after the break. We have to go and pay the bills, but until then, uh, we'll be right back. This is Sam DeMarco, your host on the elephant in the room on WJAS 1320 AM and 99.1 FM talk. Okay, folks, welcome back to the elephant in the room on WJAS 1320 AM, 99.1 FM Talk. Uh, we're joined in studio here, John Schneider, Daryl Grandy, our producer, and we have as our guest, State Representative Natalie Mihalik from the 40th Legislative District here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And Natalie, we talked a little bit last uh, last segment here about the Democrats, uh, their one-seat majority, they terming a humble majority, but yet behaving anything but humbly as they try to ram things down your throat, uh, whether it was from the rules committee and these other things. And uh, we also touched base and talked about how some of the messaging bills that they're putting out that have absolutely no hope in passing, but are designed solely to try to put Republicans on their heels, cause you trouble in your districts and make it more likely that you guys could end up uh, in some cases with a primary opponent. You know, how do you think that's going to play out? I mean, I ultimately think their plan is going to backfire. I think that most of our Republicans can see right through these thinly veiled attempts uh, to just kind of stir up trouble. You know, maybe stir up a primary, uh, you know, get your Republicans angry at you. Oh, because we know, as Republicans do, when there's a primary and you're focused on that, you're spending money and time and resources you have less of that to spend in November against mm-hmm. a Democrat. Somebody whose views that you diametrically oppose just by, you know, the mere fact that you're on opposing sides of the political spectrum. Um, so I think, like I said in the last segment, we've got to keep our eye on the prize in 2024. Like, we can't play around you know, with these silly games of, you know, oh, the, the Democrats said this, it must be true. Oh, let's run a primary. No, guys, like we've got to stay focused because 2024 is too important uh, to be playing around with these games. We've got to win the White House. We've got to do what we can to keep uh, the half of the state Senate that's up. There's a U.S. Senate seat up for grabs. 
I mean, there's all these really, really important races. So we want to conserve our resources to actually defeat the people that are on opposite ends of the political spectrum that don't share our conservative views. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hit on a great point there. I think Republicans, we need to take and look at the long game, okay? The long game here is what's the most effective way to do what we need to do to save this country and our, this Commonwealth. And it's to win in November of 2024. Okay. Like you said, both, you know, at the presidential level, U S Senate level, row office level, you know, state Senate and state house level. And, and there are so many things that are going on right now. Like earlier this week, you know, the Colorado Supreme court, they took president Trump off the ballot. Okay. Um, and then it was immediately stayed while they appealed to the U.S. because they, they feel it's going to go appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. But what happens is, it seems like with a twenty-four by seven news cycle, there's some outrage that's taking place almost every day. And while I'm certainly outraged that that occurred, I'm not getting worked up about it because I believe it's so unconstitutional that it's automatically going to be struck down by the Supreme Court. But I think this is all part of a plan from the left to have Republicans chasing shiny objects like a dog does a squirrel, you know? And they, if it's not this, it's something else. And we get whiplash going back and forth between these different issues, trying to address them. And all it does is take us away from the core job, the mission that we have at hand, which is how do we take and get our candidates elected in November. You're exactly right. You know, while you know we're upset, um, you know about all these things that they you know, want to put on the news and they want to leave it on for 24 hours a day. What's going on with the southern border? What's going right. on with our economy? What's going on at the gas pump? There are all these major issues that I don't want to say we're overlooking them, but these more controversial, more sensational headlines you know, certainly if Donald Trump's involved um, and they're relying on us to get all riled up over those things instead of actually what really matters. And, 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 and you, right. And, and there's so many different issues and we're under attack by so many different areas all at the same time. For example, you know, if they don't want to take over women's sports by allowing men to play in it, okay, you have uh, university presidents that won't protect the Jewish students that they have on campus. You have folks in kindergarten and elementary school trying to teach gender theory or worse to many of the kids that are, you know, are, I mean, my gosh, these kids still believe in Santa Claus. Okay. <clears throat> and they're hitting them with all this other stuff. You have the assault we have with the, on the constitution with Biden and executive orders trying to take and decide that he's going to take it, forgive all this student loan debt. You have the hauling out of our military. You know, yes, we just passed an $886 billion defense authorization bill. But at the same time, how much money in there is spent for gender conversion th uh, surgery? How much money is spent or allocated to take and provide out-of-state abortions or services? How much money in there is spent on biofuels? You know, we have this lunatic we have as a energy secretary that was talking about converting our military vehicles to all electric, okay? Like charging stations are available 
on battlefields all across the globe. Okay, I mean it is you, the the southern border. Again, we've had millions, millions of people have come across since Biden has been in office, and they're refusing to secure it. You know, they, they these cities, Chicago, New York, that are complaining that they are stretched past the breaking point trying to care for these migrants. They've only gotten a fraction, a small fraction of the migrants that have come across the Texas and Arizona border and that are killing us and crushing us here in the South. You know, we have folks that are coming across on the terrorist watch list. I guess my point in all this is we are under assault. Our values are under assault in so many different ways that if we try reacting to every single one of those, you know, we're going to lose sight of the thing that's important, which is winning in November. And that's why we can't allow our eyes to move off of the prize. And that's electing great candidates like yourself back to elected office to ensure that we're able to fight and stop some of these things. And that's why it is so incredibly important that every single Republican, independent, moderate Democrat come out and put a stop to all of this. Well, I appreciate that, Sam. And and like I said in the last segment, I'm excited to be running uh, again. I do have unfinished business in the state house. Um, but beyond that, all the way up the ballot, there are so many candidates that you're going to see on your 2024 ballot that can make a difference for Pennsylvania, that can make a difference for your community, that can make that difference for America. Because you're right, and you touched on a lot of the issues uh, that are brewing right now that are going to continue, and especially with this border crisis. I mean, the Democrats have really dropped the ball. I mean, it, it has become this humanitarian crisis. I was watching, you know, some of the footage this morning of what's going on in Texas, and mm-hmm. your, your heart just breaks. And it's not, a, you know, an easy solution. I understand the complexities involved, but I do think that you know the administration, the Biden administration, had an opportunity, and they they didn't take it. They failed. And they're failing all those people along the border there. So I think that the opportunity lies with the voters now. Who can actually solve this crisis? Like, who shares our values? And that's who we want to, you know, be putting that checkbox next to their name. Uh, and that requires you to actually turn out and vote. So I think your, your message is well received. I hope that everybody's listening today, every registered Republican, independent, um, it doesn't matter because we need you to vote for who's going to do the best job for America, for your community, for the Commonwealth. I mean, I, I've always believed, Natalie, that when someone goes to the polls on Election Day and they pull that lever or, you know, whether you're filling out your absentee or mail-in ballot and you're coloring in the little circles there, that you're doing so, making selections or choices that you believe in some way, somehow, that they're going to take and benefit you or your family, you know, your kids, your grandkids. And when we look at where this country is today, I mean, my gosh, Joe Biden is the has the lowest approval ratings of any president in history since they've started record keeping at this point. Okay, and and with good reason. I mean, my gosh, uh, you know, you have these kids that are dealing with student loan debt. And now they can't even begin to hope to, you know, if they got married, to be able to buy a home and raise a family with the, you know, incredibly high cost of uh, home buying because of the inflation and the cost of building materials, but also mortgage rates. 
You know, Democrats have talked about affordable housing, and not, affordable housing isn't even affordable for the middle class any longer. Okay, I mean, uh, wages aren't keeping up with inflation. It's it's we are just we are in a in a bad state right now. I don't foresee things getting any better anytime soon. So we absolutely should be in a position to change the direction we're going. But it only happens, it only happens if our folks come out and vote. And the problem is the Democrats, they don't have better candidates. They don't have better ideas. But they do have a better get-out-the-vote infrastructure. And they do have more money, you know. So can we win? Absolutely. Will we win? It depends on the people listening and putting into action the steps that we're talking about, which is getting out there, you know, voting, making your voice heard. And I, hey, listen, I urge people, you know, apply for your mail-in or absentee ballot, complete it, send it in, you know, do it as soon as you can. Get that vote in the bank. That allows us to spend the money that we do raise more effectively. It allows you to know and feel confident that your vote is counted and it's going to be heard. And it can help us as we look to take back the White House, the Senate, and the Pennsylvania House. Oh, exactly. And and just to go back to some of what you said, and you're talking about the infrastructure of the Democrats, like they've got this wheel. They are able to turn out candidates and turn out voters and turn out the mail-in ballots. And and we do lack that. So if you're if you're listening and the future of this country is important to you, donate your time and resources. Make a donation to a local candidate. Go knock on you know, 20 doors on a Saturday morning uh, for one of the candidates that you really believe in. Because mm-hmm. that's where we lack in our, our grassroots. And like you said, we're outspent all the, all the time. Almost on every race, we get outspent. They've got Hollywood resources. They have access to resources that we, we just don't. And it really comes down to individual donations and people that care about the future of this country investing their resources. A couple of other things that I just wanted to note, Sam, you said that um, you know Biden has the lowest approval rating basically since when they started keeping records. Did you know he was alive back when they started keeping those records? <laughs> it seems like it, I, doesn't I it? I couldn't resist that one. <laughs> and on the affordable housing front, it almost seems like, you know, when they talk about affordable housing, they're talking about providing it. Mm-hmm. For the, our low-income, you know, wage earners, they're talking about giving it for free. They're not talking about the middle class that struggle where you literally you've got these, you know, student loan debt. Uh, you've got to pay for childcare. You've got to, you know, pay for the grocery bill every week. It's insane what it is right now. I know just from you know going grocery shopping this morning because I've got three kids to feed, um, and it's outrageous. They're talking about affordable housing, giving it away, not mm-hmm. this common struggle that we see in the middle class of just being able to get away from a rental situation and, and purchase that home and live the American dream. Uh, it's almost becoming unattainable right now. Oh, absolutely. I, I was making a play on, on words there, you know, by, by, by pointing that out. But you're absolutely right. And, and here's the thing. This is a sad thing, Natalie. So much of the problems that are facing us today are self-inflicted. You know, like they, we talked about affordable housing there as the Democrats mean it, okay? But so much of it is caused by poor zoning and planning and 
property restrictions on land use that they have in the city. For example, I don't know if you know, but in the city, you're not allowed to build development higher than 37 feet high without special permission. Well, they also demand with inclusionary zoning that every property that be built have so many units set aside, you know, for low income folks. But the problem is if you're limiting the number of units that can be built, you're limiting the opportunity for a developer to recover their costs, which means that nothing gets built. And therefore the supply doesn't increase. If the demand increases, prices only go up. And that's why rent, you know, and the cost of these things is so high. But it doesn't have to be that way. But these folks never look at the things they're doing as the cause or as a contributing factor in why things are the way they are today. And you almost wonder, you know, are those decisions being made politically? Because um, I certainly think that that's the case, and we're not looking at what's best for the region, what's best for the city. And certainly out here in the suburbs, like we're getting an influx of you know people that can no longer afford to live in the city. And there's mm-hmm. a, a lack of housing, like literally a lack of affordable housing. So they're coming out you know, for the suburbs, having to make that commute or working from home, uh, which isn't helping our commercial real estate. Uh, in downtown Pittsburgh, we know that that's suffering a lot as well and has mm-hmm. been since COVID. And I don't really know a way out of that right now. When I go downtown, it's a very different place than it was three or four years ago. No, absolutely. And you know, I mean, the Post-Gazette on Thursday, there were some articles in there and they were talking about, oh, how vibrant downtown is now. And they're talking about the number of businesses that came in there. But when you start to look at those, the majority of those are like restaurants. You know, those aren't long-term tenants. And I do believe that we're going to be facing a hole here. Uh, prior to the pandemic, a lot of the folks, the occupants of these downtown buildings, they had longer-term leases. You know, they had four or five-year leases and things like that. Well, I know folks like Bank of New York Mellon, they've moved their people primarily out of Mellon Center. And when that lease is up, they're not renewing it, okay? Uh, that's just, you know, just one company. Uh, so I'm concerned about what's going to happen here. I can tell you that there are thousands thousands of property tax assessment appeals yet to be heard. And when you do the uh, assessed value for these buildings downtown, a lot of it is based, or it's almost always based, upon their occupancy rate, you know, and the revenue and things like that that is being brought in. Well, with this decrease in occupancy and the increase in vacancy rates, these buildings are no longer worth what they were assessed at, and that's going to put a hole in, co- in the county, in the city coffers, as well as the Pittsburgh Public Schools, which you know, is already outrageous. I can't believe this. Every year, their budget increases by millions of dollars, and their enrollment decreases by thousands of students. Okay, Talk about a waste of money, but that's a whole, that's a whole different show. And that's really, you know, just back to something we talked about in the first segment uh, within the fiscal code, the EITC money, um, uh-huh. you know, that's your case in point with the city of Pittsburgh school district, like throwing more money is not going to solve the problem. Their graduation rate is at an all time low. They have students disenrolling on the daily. Um, that's why, you know, we've prioritized EITC credits. We've prioritized getting away from those failing school districts and actually doing a service for the student, that service being educating them. Education is the great equalizer. If we're in the, you know, this situation where people can't afford you know, gas and groceries and all these things, 
And granted, it's it's very expensive. But without an education, you're just fighting with one hand tied behind your back. Well, and, and that brings up a another great point is the Democrats always say that they're the party of the little man, okay, and that they're fighting on behalf of the little guy. They claim that they're the ones that support the communities of color and that they're fighting on their behalf. But yet, when we know that education is the key out of poverty, education keeps people from ending up in corrections. You know, they are so opposed to not just school choice, but even the expansion in EITC scholarships that you guys had put forth. I mean, I, I did, again, so many of the wounds that we as a society are facing seem to me to be self-inflicted and dictated based upon political political considerations and not on what works or doesn't work. Absolutely. And I and I want to bring this up. It's it's sort of on topic as we're talking about you know, educating our students, um, keeping them out of the criminal justice system. Um, I know that there's been a lot of talk about Schumann over the last few years since Governor Wolf closed it, um, and we're looking to get that reopened in Allegheny County. I think Westmoreland County has their own issues as far as their juvenile detention centers concerned. Um, so with these you know, centers being closed and then reopened, I think the, the thing that needs to be focused on is education. There's nearly 50% of students who are in a juvenile facility don't return to school. Mm-hmm. And the ones that do, 75% will later drop out. Um, so as they're coordinating this reopen, I think it's so important to look at those numbers because they're pretty stark. Um, and it's not an exaggeration. I might, I might actually be lowballing it a little bit. But for 50% to not go, return to school, and now you know some might be for serious crimes and they're going to spend a significant time in prison. Um, and, it, and those numbers don't account for that. I, I get it. Uh, but to educate those kids, connect back with their school districts, get them back into the educational system and out of the criminal justice system, I think is so important to the future of our community, to the future of this country, really. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of arrests being made for nonviolent, low-level offenses, um, and it's really going to take a lot of effort, and I think on the ground, uh, to work with those kids, reintegrate them to the educational system, and get them out of the criminal justice system. That's something I'm just very passionate about. So I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk about that. I think it's you know, relevant, just given you know what Schumann's gone through the last couple of years. No, I, I appreciate you weighing in on that. And you know, I had done a, uh, a PowerPoint a number of years ago in regards to school choice, but we were looking at corrections. And I mean, I can't believe the number of folks that were in there that I don't think could do uh, math at like a fourth grade grade level, okay? Uh, and reading, you know, was uh, was less than eighth grade, you know, if that, if that. They are <laughs> set up for failure. I will say that. I, yeah. You know, through through my work here, you know, not just in the juvenile justice realm, um, but just in the criminal justice realm, I came to learn actually from a, a charter school in the Pittsburgh area, Providence. They service. Uh, dyslexic children, over half of our federal prison population is dyslexic. Wow, I did not know that. When I learned that, that's sort of, you know, what set me off. And my background is, you know, an attorney, and I practiced in criminal court for a better part of 10 years. Uh, but when I first heard that statistic, well, number one, I didn't believe it. So I'm sure if you're listening, you're Googling it right now. Please Google it. Google the first 
Step Act that was passed by Congress back in 2016 to actually drill down on those numbers and do something about it. I've been trying to replicate that here for our state correctional facilities, um, and right now I'm working you know, to look at that in the juvenile justice context because the number is believed to be much higher when you're looking at a juvenile justice facility versus you know, what I said that number was for our, our federal prison. So I think it's it's so important. And I've had you know some experience now just working on this issue the last couple of years, talking to constituents where they their kid was, you know, fine, like born without issue, um, toddlerhood, you know, all normal, reaching their milestones at a, a regular pace. And then when they got to be of that reading age, they suddenly start getting into trouble. They're in the principal's office. They're suspended. They're cutting themselves. They're doing all these things. And it turns out... Many of these children, they were dyslexic. They were never diagnosed. Our Department of Education doesn't screen for it. Um, so there's this giant gaping hole in our education system where this is such a prevalent learning disability um, that with you know the proper education, you can be anything you want to be. It's not going to hold you back as long as you're learning to your skill level. Uh, what happens is there's either no diagnosis or a misdiagnosis. These kids get caught up in the criminal justice system, first it's juvenile justice, then it's criminal justice. And that's, you know, why you have these prisoners that don't know how to read. They're doing math on a fourth grade level, but all these things that have held them back for their entire lives. And our system is set up to just turn them in and out instead of addressing the real problem. And, and I think that's the most frustrating thing. You know, you talk about your background, where you came from. I was in business. And in business, you know, I, business process outsourcing and optimization. So what I did was I would go into companies that were having problems and we would take and take steps to try to make their processes and their companies more efficient, more productive. You know, and, and I went home at the end of the day, every day, believing that I had actually helped someone by solving business problems. And you get into government because you want to solve some of these problems. And it's so frustrating to try to work with folks when you see these things and you see these lives that are being affected and potentially ruined. And folks don't seem to actually want to solve the problem. They just seem to want to move the issue, you know, back and forth. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah, and I think government has a tendency to just, you know, throw some more money at it. Oh, this, you know, they need education services and prison. Well, let's increase their line item by a half a percent. Give them, give them another you know, half million dollars, whatever it is. Right. That doesn't do anything at addressing the problem. Like just throwing money at it, just like the city of Pittsburgh school district, throwing money at it, it, it's not helpful. And sometimes it can even move things in the other direction. Yeah, over half over half of their desks are empty because their enrollment is so low. Yeah, but their facilities are open, their staff, those sorts of things. So, Natalie, as always, time flies when we're having fun here. Okay, it sure it's does. been a pleasure having you join us and. You know, I want to just take a, a minute here. We have a minute, I think a minute left. Um, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity, and I wanted to thank all of our listeners out there and wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And Natalie, do you have anything you want to say to the folks? Yeah, absolutely. Go finish that last-minute Christmas shopping. Get your gifts wrapped. Have a very Merry Christmas, a wonderful New Year celebration with your family, with your friends. Enjoy that time. And then once we get to 2024, we got our work cut out for us. Absolutely. Folks, enjoy the holidays because come New Year, we have a lot of work to get accomplished. Until next week, this is Sam DeMarco signing off for The Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM.